Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we've heard your word now, we ask for help as we focus our attention upon it, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would be able to know you, the Lord Jesus, that we will be able to see him revealed to us here, revealed for us here in this passage in Luke. Father, help us to grow, help us to trust in you and what you have revealed here in your word, and may our lives continue to be shaped much more so by your word than they are by this fallen world. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, I read a book which told the story of uh, the most important day of the Second World War. That is, of course, D-Day, uh, June the 6th, 1944. The book was written by Stephen Ambrose and focused on all the different aspects of that uh, successful attack on the German forces on the Western Front by the Allies. And it was a fascinating read. Uh, out of all the, the different military units that were involved in, in the attack, I think I was most fascinated by the air glider pilots. The air glider pilots who flew in behind enemy lines ahead of the attack on the beaches. And these gliders, were, they were not self-propelled planes. You know, these were just huge gliders made of plywood which carried either a, a squad of infantrymen or they carried artillery and equipment for the attack on the German military. And these gliders were attached by tow ropes to larger airplanes, which took off in England and then flew over uh, the English Channel. And then the tow ropes were cut loose to set them free to just glide in over the land into enemy lines. The hope was that since the gliders weren't powered by engines, that they could just silently fly over the land without being um, detected uh, by the enemies, and then the soldiers could uh, attack the German uh, forces from both sides, from the beach as well as from an inland position. The problem was that the uh, Germans began firing on these gliders almost immediately, and there were so many trees and hedgerows uh, in the area that they were supposed to land that many of the pilots crash-landed right into them into the trees and hedgerows. Uh, they were, of course, landing in the dark of the early morning hours, and they were only going by photographs of the land that had been taken months before when, of course, the trees had no leaves on them. And now it was June 4th, the beginning of summer, so the trees were covered with leaves, which made it almost impossible to see where they were supposed to land. Yet in spite of these challenges, many, many of the glider pilots landed their gliders and their soldiers safely on the ground, completing their mission. But what impressed me the most was how these air glider pilots showed that they were committed not just to their mission, but to the mission of the army as a whole. For after they successfully landed their gliders, even though they had the chance to stay back with their planes and let the infantrymen do the fighting, well, they all joined in the attack on the German lines. 
even though some of them weren't even trained to do so. They just grabbed a rifle and they followed their fellow, fellow soldiers into the battle. And when someone is fully committed to a mission, he shows it by not taking a way out when he is given the opportunity to do so, but instead submits himself to complete the mission, even when he knows it may cost him his life. That is what those glider pilots did on D-Day, and many of them did end up giving their lives. Now, last weekend was Easter weekend when the church remembers and celebrates the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Good Friday in particular, we considered how great of a sacrifice dying on the cross was for the Lord Jesus. What great suffering he experienced there, not only physically, but even much more so in suffering God's wrath for our sin. In essence, Christ endured the horrors of hell in order to save his people. And today, as we return to our place in the Gospel of Luke, where we left off a few weeks ago, we go back a ways chronologically in the ministry of Jesus, uh, probably almost three years before the cross, and we find Jesus at a point in his ministry where he had the opportunity to, to take a way of escape from having to endure the cross. But instead of seeing Jesus take the way out, we see him remain committed to his mission, his mission of redeeming and restoring the people of God, even though we knew it would cost him his life. For this is where the Lord Jesus selects who will be his 12 apostles, those whom he will personally train for ministry. And of course, as Luke reminds us here, when he chose who his disciples would be, he chose one whom he knew would end up betraying him into the hands of authorities who will end up crucifying him. Jesus knew this would be costly, be a very costly choice for him to make, and yet he makes it anyway, showing us how committed he was to the mission that he had been sent in, into the world to accomplish. So our, our main theme here from these verses, verses 12 through 19 of Luke 6, is that Jesus was fully committed to restore the people of God no matter what it cost him. So in our study of Luke's gospel here, as we've been making our way through, we are seeking to keep our eyes on Jesus. We want to see Jesus so we can know him. We can know how he lived, how he, how he worked, what his mission was, and how he accomplished that mission. So in this passage, what we see when we look at Jesus is we, we see Jesus in submission to the will of his Father, primarily there in verse 12. Let's look at that. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now we've seen this before in Luke, and we'll see it again. Jesus going off, away from the crowds, in order to pray. On this occasion, Luke emphasizes that Jesus continued all night in prayer to God. This was a little more than just a brief time of prayer for Jesus. On this particular night, Jesus believed that it was much more important for him to be praying than to be sleeping. 
when, we, when we, we read the next few verses, we then find out what his time in prayer was focused on. It was focused on the selection of the 12 apostles. Now, Luke just loves to show us the great importance that Jesus put on prayer. Several times in the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus praying, especially prior to big events uh, in his uh, ministry. Jesus made prayer a priority. So, of course, the question uh, for those of us who follow Jesus this morning would be, is prayer a priority for us? Luke shows us how valuable prayer was to Jesus in his gospel. And then in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, we find there that prayer was a very important uh, thing as well to the early Christians. Because time and again, Luke shares that they prayed, especially prior, again, to, to big events that were occurring. So is prayer then important to us? Do you make prayer a priority in your schedule? Jesus, just prior to, to choosing who will be the 12 apostles, spends all night in prayer. No doubt talking to God about these men, praying for each one by name, asking God to, to work in their hearts, to strengthen them, to give them wisdom and insight in the way of the gospel praying for their protection against sin and temptation and the devil, praying that the Lord would prepare them for this service and probably praying as well for the families of these men who would have to endure a great sacrifice for these men to be apostles. He was also very likely praying in a similar way as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, knowing that he was about to choose uh, one man to follow him who would then be, who would end up becoming his betrayer. Probably praying for the Lord to help him to endure what he's about to encounter. The Lord was, was both depending upon God the Father through his prayer and was submitting himself to the Father's will in his prayer. This is also what we are called to do through our prayers. That is, if, if prayer is important to us, if prayer is, is something that we do, we, we, we pray in order to depend upon the Father as well as submit ourselves to his will. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. You know, one of the main reasons we, we neglect to pray is because we really don't believe we need it. That we can handle things just fine on our own. But if, if Jesus, the Son of God, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, spends all night in prayer, then maybe, maybe, we in all of our weakness and dimness might need to pray just a little bit more than Jesus does. Now, I love to read biographies of some of the greatest leaders that the Lord has used in the history of the church. Um, I'm currently reading one on Jim Elliott. Uh, the missionary who was killed in the mid-1950s while attempting to make contact with an unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a sharing a presentation of uh, Jim Elliott's life with you on Memorial Day weekend in a few weeks. Uh, through the years, I've read biographies of uh, St. Augustine, of William Tyndale, John Newton, David Brainerd, Adoniram Judson, Amy Carmichael, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, and Billy Graham. A great 
leaders who have all done so much good for the Lord, who have influenced so many. And, and, and do you know what is common about each of those men, each of those people? They were all people who were devoted to prayer. Prayer was a very common practice for them. Both private prayer as well as gathering with other, other believers to pray. Prayer is such a common theme among some of the greatest leaders of the church that it kind of makes you think that maybe God really does work through the prayers of his people to empower them to do great works for the kingdom. But of course, that is exactly what we are meant to believe. I mean, especially when we see the Lord Jesus modeling that for us here. So brother and sister, do not forsake your prayers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let us press on in praying for the Lord to prepare and send out laborers into his harvest. Next in verses 13 through 16, we see Jesus engaging in his mission of restoring the people of God. Let's read read those verses again. And when day came... He called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 13 here reveals two key bits of information about what Jesus is doing here. The first is that we are to notice who is the one in control of this whole operation. When day came, it says, he, meaning Jesus, called his disciples. So there was a huge, there large number of disciples here who were already following Jesus. We're not given a number. Um, you know, we could maybe speculate as to how many there were, but another word for speculating is, is guessing. And we only you know, guess when we don't really know, so let's just leave it at that then. We, we don't know how many disciples were following him. But out of all of the disciples that were with Jesus at that time, we are, are, are then told that he chose from them, chose out of all these disciples, he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So who chose who was going to be an apostle here? He chose. These men listed here did not apply for this job. They did not seek it. They did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. He chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. We are first supposed to notice the sovereignty of Jesus behind the selection of men who were to be his 12 apostles. Not, not only was he the one choosing them, he's also the one giving them their name, whom he named apostles. He's also the one who named Simon Peter, meaning rock. See, in, in, in the scriptures, whenever someone names someone else, it, it denotes the authority that they have over the person named. 
And usually the, the name given has to do with the role that that person will uh, fulfill. Uh, the 12 here were to fill the role of apostles for Jesus. That is, they were to be his messengers, his delegates, his representatives whom he will send out in his name. He chose them and he named them and he will commission them and he will send them. The next thing that we are to note is their number. He chose from them 12. This is most definitely not a random number in the Bible. It is by design. We see this, the significance of the number 12 from the beginning of the Bible to the end, with the focus being on the people of God. In Genesis, we see the Lord give Jacob 12 sons. The descendants of the 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel who are led out of Egypt by Moses and then into the promised land. And the promised land is divided up among the 12 tribes. And then here in the Gospels, we see Jesus choose 12 apostles who will essentially be the beginning of the church, those who will follow Jesus and carry his message of salvation to the nations. And then as Jesus says later in Luke 22, verse 30, these apostles, these 12 will sit on thrones in my kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We see how significant the number 12 is in the first chapter of Acts. When after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the apostles uh, were down to the number 11, because Judas had taken his own life. And so they select another to take his place, so that they would again have 12. Then in Revelation, the number 12 figures prominently throughout the book, usually representing the redeemed people of God, particularly in, Re in Revelation chapter 7. It's almost impossible to, see, to uh, miss how directly the number 12 points to the people of God in the Bible. And then Luke lists the names of the 12. We are introduced to each one, but we are, we are definitely not told much about them here. What we do know is that they were an unimpressive bunch. Remember how Peter and James are described when they appear before the council of elders and the high priests in Acts chapter 4. It says that they were perceived as uneducated common men. They were an unimpressive bunch. But what was Jesus doing here choosing these men? What was he choosing them for? Well, for the next three years, Jesus is going to, be, to spend almost all of his time with these 12 men, and even more time with Peter, James, and John. These men will, will live life with Jesus. They will observe everything he does, all of his interactions with people, all the times that he's challenged by the Pharisees and other opponents, and they will receive all of his teaching. They will be taught more than any others in the years of Jesus' ministry. And then they will witness his crucifixion and his resurrection. And they will then be commissioned by Jesus to go out to all the nations and to do the very same thing to others as Jesus did for them. That is, they are to go out and make disciples, teaching them all that Jesus has taught them. Of course, it will come with a high cost. 
just as it did for Jesus. One of these disciples will betray Jesus into the hands of the authorities who will end up crucifying Jesus. So in calling Judas, Judas Iscariot, to be an apostle and spending all the time he does with him, teaching and showing him the way of the kingdom, it will end up costing Jesus his life. But that is the way that Jesus will restore the people of God. Teaching and training these disciples, showing them that the road to glory must pass through suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, from Acts 14.22. And it will be very costly for each of the apostles, too, for they will all suffer greatly for being an apostle. They will all be killed for going out into the world and making disciples. But this is the way that God's people will, will be restored through the church making disciples of all nations and being willing to suffer for it. Now, like I mentioned, I've been reading uh, the biography of Jim Elliott. He and his four partners in ministry, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Ed McCulley, uh, were a lot like the names of the men that we see written down in these verses here. They were ordinary men. Not well known, but they were disciples of the Lord Jesus. They had spent years learning from him by reading and studying his word. And they were each willing to go wherever the Lord Jesus called them to go in order to make disciples of others. And so in January of 1956, they entered the jungle of Ecuador with a plan to reach the tribe of jungle people known as the Alcas. The Alcas were primitive people who uh, refused to have any contact with civilization. They were known for killing those who tried to make contact with them. But Jim and Nate and others have been flying over their village for months, dropping down gifts to them, trying to speak to them in their native language that they had learned. And they really believed that the time was now right to try and make contact, personal contact. And they dreamed of, of introducing this violent group of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, two days after spending time with a man and two women from the village, a group of men from the village came to where the five missionaries were and speared them all to death, leaving their bodies along the Curaway River where they had camped. The cost was high for those disciples to try and make disciples but it was a cost they were all willing to make. Maybe you know that the story didn't end there. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, later made contact with the same tribe and helped them to understand the gospel. And God saved many of the people in the tribe, granting them repentance and faith, including some of the men who were responsible for the deaths of the missionaries. What might be the cost for you to, to seek to make disciples of others here where the Lord has placed you? What might be the cost? Some of your time? Yeah. Maybe a, a, an awkward conversation or two? Maybe, you know, you'd feel uncomfortable at doing something you haven't done before? talking with a friend or, or neighbor about the gospel or 
inviting a, a younger Christian to read the Bible or a good Christian book with you, meeting up regularly and talking about your faith with them. Yeah, there, there, there will be some cost involved, but that is the way that the Lord has always been seeking to restore his people to their rightful place with God through, through making disciples who will then go on and make more disciples. If you are a Christian, you have been chosen by the Lord to be actively involved in his mission. And it is a mission that God is active in. A mission that he will empower you to accomplish as we then see in the next few verses here. Look at verses 17 through 19. We see here that Jesus reveals that his mission is one which will display his Father's mercy. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon and who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So next, after Jesus chooses the 12 out of the larger number of disciples, they they all come down the mountain with him, and a great multitude of people gather around them. We, we We are told where the great multitude of people came from which were actually, uh, it's a quite you know, diverse backgrounds here. There's all Judea and Jerusalem, which were, you know, from the people here for, from the center of religious life in Judea. And then it says some even came from the seacoast of, of Tyre and Sidon, which, which were heavily influenced by Greek culture. And many were considered to be bitter enemies of the Jews. We're also told why they have come. They've come to hear him teach and to be healed of their diseases. Now what's striking here about Jesus is just how patient and merciful Jesus is. I mean, just picture this. If you can, many people pressing in on him, trying to touch him. Do you like people touching you? Especially people you don't know? That's what's happening. Sick people. Diseased people, people with demons, frankly, people who probably didn't smell very well, probably even people that we would work hard to avoid contact with. These are the people whom Jesus patiently and mercifully heals. No one is turned away. God has empowered him for this work, for this ministry. But he doesn't just heal these people. Jesus doesn't just believe, or Jesus doesn't believe that that all that these people need from him is to be healed of their sicknesses or disabilities and then sent on their way. For right after this, Jesus will also teach them. That's what makes up the rest of chapter 6, is his teaching to these people. See, Jesus was also seeking to, to heal their souls, to convict them of their sins and to lead them to repentance. What these people needed above and beyond healing was to believe the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus is Lord. So friends, you all have something in common with the people that are mentioned here. For you have come this morning to hear Jesus' word. 
Why have you come? Why do you believe that Jesus is able to give you help? Who do you believe he is? How do you regard Jesus? He, he is not just someone you can say you know and then live nothing like. He, he's, he's not just someone that you can just add to your life without your life changing much at all. Jesus is Lord. He is Master. He is God. He is the only Savior. And he's calling you to come and follow him. To be his disciple, to, to, to learn from him, and then to go and make disciples of others. That will mean for you what it meant for these men. Turn away from the way that you've been living your lives, what you've been focusing all of your attention on, focusing on, you know, living for your own pleasure, living for your own good, and it is to submit to the new life and the new way that Jesus is calling you to, to, to live as he did, fully dependent upon God the Father, and submissive to his will for your life. And God's able to use you, empowering you for the ministry, empowering you for the work that he's calling his people to do. Now, as we see, it, it will be a way of suffering. It will cost you. But it's also the only way to glory. Through suffering will come glory. As it did for Jesus, as it will for all those who follow him. So my plea for, for all of you to follow Jesus means to turn away from the way of life that you have grown accustomed to. It means to, to look to him, to depend upon him, to, to trust him for your life. And no longer look to those other things you've been trusting in. Come to him, offer yourself to him, and he'll fill you with his spirit and empower you for the work of ministry. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word this morning, and also, Father, encouraged as we see the tender mercy of Jesus for all those people who came to him. And we also see the power and the authority that Jesus holds. Lord, help us to submit to his authority. Help us to offer ourselves to him as his disciples. And Father, empower us the work of the gospel here in the community that you have called us to live in and be a part of. We ask you to do this for the honor and glory and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.